think that maybe not many of you will know what Chan is. How many know what Chan is? Heard the word Chan? No. Okay. How many of you have heard the word Zen? Oh, there we go. So Chan is the precursor to Zen. So Zen became a self-conscious movement within China in 6th, 7th century. And it was transmitted to Japan in the 12th century. And 20th century came to the West. So that's the... So I met my teacher when I was um, 11. And uh, I'm now 51. So I've known him for a long time. And uh, he has shaped my life. And today I'd like to share with you some of some of the things that I've learned. Okay. Uh, before we start, how many of you have meditated before? Raise your hand. Wonderful. So, thank you. It's over. <laughs> you already know. Um, now, the thing with meditation is that in all of the traditional Buddhist languages, there is no equivalent term for meditation. At least in the, in the uh, associations that we have with it. The closest term to how we conceive of meditation in the West is a term called bhavana. Now, in the way that we conceive of meditation, we typically associate it with a posture, correct? Yeah. In all the Buddhist countries and languages, the term bhavana, as you notice up here, is not directly connected to a language of seated posture. This is extremely important because from the Buddhist perspective, which I'll just give a very, very brief introduction, and then today I will uh, present a theoretical basis using neuroscience and kind of modern West, and then just kind of take the practice of meditation, one particular method, out of the traditional Buddhist context and put, put it in this uh, kind of Western neuroscientific context. But our conception of me meditation it's actually a remnant of 19th century constructs of the Orient. It's a form of Orientalism. The West, in the 19th century, through colonization, we have technology, we have modernity. The East, they have culture, they have the Eastern wisdom. And from the beginning founders of this, these encounters, such as the uh, Theosophist, uh, um, spiritualist, you know, Henry Thoreau, Walden Pond, uh, these early encounters with Buddhism, they left a lasting impact in the present of what meditation is, and that is associated with a particular posture seated. Now, this does not mean that traditional Buddhist practitioners do not meditate in a seated posture. Of course they do. 
But that's only one aspect of meditation because the way they conceive of it is completely integrated with life. As long as we have a mind, as long as we engage in tasks, we can engage in bhavana practice. All the practice of virtue, mindfulness, meditation, contemplative practices, concentration, wisdom, right into daily activities. So this is very important that I usually begin with to kind of cut across uh, this um, wall that we usually put up if we learn meditation, now we have to commit myself every week or every day, set aside a special time to sit. No. What we're going to do today is learn a method of practice that we can integrate right into your daily life, your work, your job, your family, your interactions with um, others. Does that sound all right? Okay. So when we talk about Cultivation, you know, practice. Uh, bhavana also has the meaning of mending, you know, changing, transforming. What are we actually cultivating? For example, from the Buddhist context, cultivate freedom. Freedom. Now, this is my translation of the term nirvana. How many of you have never heard the term nirvana? Never to, okay, nirvana is a traditional kind of Romanized Sanskrit term for liberation. Liberation from what? Why should we cultivate? Cultivate what? To liberate from what? I equate the term nirvana or freedom with Chan because Chan has several meanings or Zen, right? uh, one of which is awakening itself. It does not refer to the method, it refers to the realization itself. So, now, freedom from what? Right? Liberation from what? Traditionally, there's terms like vexations, contaminants of the mind, such as greed, hatred, ignorance, jealousy, arrogance, and all these different harmful qualities. But if we were to translate this to uh, something relevant to us, we can simply understand it as stress. Right? Stress. Hindrances that uh, kind of prevent us from performing um, our best. Right? So Now, it's very important to understand the relationship between freedom to be free from and, and stress. From the Buddhist perspective, and this is the only bit of Buddhism that you'll get today, freedom is not, and this is very important, freedom is not something outside of yourself that you have to get. It is right here in this moment. And all the vexations, elements of stress, they're actually like the furniture in this room. Whereas the freedom is the natural, intrinsic 
spaciousness of this room. This means that spiritual practice, bhavana, it's not just another thing we practice so we can get. We can kind of zap into, get our two minutes of bliss, and then go out. It is intrinsic to who you are. But most people, like all of you coming here today, in this room, we tend to just notice the furniture. Not when people are here on the empty chairs. So when we are caught up or with furniture, and we don't recognize the spaciousness, the openness of this room, that is analogous to being caught up with all the monologues in our, in our minds, right? the feelings and thoughts and ideas. We mistaken those to be who we are. Now, who we are, of course, there's a history to who we are. Right? All about showering pro process that shaped the way we are. That has a history, but that doesn't actually define the natural intrinsic freedom that we possess. Right? So, for example, I often get this analogy because uh, I have kids now and I'm watching them. I'm watching their sense of self develop you know, in this process. Children, when parents come home, they're very tired. They have to cook. They have to get things ready. But children, their brain is not developed fully yet. Not until at least the neuroscientists tell us about 25 years old. So they cannot conceptualize and contextualize through abstract thinking. The mother comes home, oh, let's give her some free time. She needs more space now. You know, I can just you know, put myself aside. So what they interpret of the mother being busy after all their work is, I'm not seen, I'm not heard. I'm not loved, potentially. They cannot think outside of their instinctual uh, needs in that moment. Right? So it's like the brain, while it's forming in that process, using the analogy of Legos, in that process, the building blocks of the brain itself embedded so deep is flawed from the outset in this process. So embedded in that, forming in the process of shaping our personality, shaping the way we relate to other people when we become adults, it's already embedded into that, these narratives, images, and relationships. Does that make sense? So to uproot that, or to free ourselves from that, we need to practice, cultivate the bhavana. So just to understand that we are originally free, spacious, open. We don't have to get caught up with the furniture of, the, of our minds. We can understand that conceptually, you know, prefrontal cortex, we can understand it, but emotively, we're not able to do it.
So it's important to understand that analogy because if we try to think of meditation or you know, freedom or substituting that with happiness as something outside ourselves that we have to get, then it becomes another furniture. It becomes a kind of spiritual materialism or spiritual substitution. Before I'm into this, now that I learn meditation, I really need to de-stress. I have to get that. All of us are already free. We just need to learn a new way of relating to the furniture of this room. Instead of being dictated, shaped, continuing to be conditioned by it, we have to cultivate an awareness, a clarity of mind to first expose all the furniture of this room. And that takes mindfulness. Once we can expose, then we have to embrace because all that we are, there's a history to it. There's a reason why we are the way we are. So it's not to just, I'm sure many of you heard the word, let go. You know, we just have to let go. Well, we just let go. We can't let go because we have to understand the undercurrent tone of our feeling, of our psyche, of our mental process. Once we can expose this, then we can see, understand them, embrace them. Then we can transform them. Then we can let go. So the letting go part is actually the easy part. It's the first three that's very difficult. The exposing, um, embracing, and working through. And then sometimes through some catalyst in daily life, someone says something, suddenly we're able to kind of change our perspective on things. So, any questions so far? Okay. We have a segment of uh, Q&A at the end of the talk. So, <clears throat> very quickly, I'm going to go through this. And I'm hoping that maybe Craig or Helen, when they make this video available, they can also make the PowerPoint slides. So you can just read about it. I have notes tied to each of uh, the slides, so you can just go off and uh, discover more reading materials or things to explore. So basically, you know, like vexations, stress. There are many ways to define stress. There's an experiential where we think that this is happening to me. You know, the culprit is over there. That's the culprit. Right? This is a very primitive, naive, understanding because if the culprit is really outside like my boss my colleague my family then everyone around those people should have the same experience right because that's the culprit i'm not saying culprit is here <laughs> but what i'm saying is each of us experience the world differently 
through our past experiences, our mood, you know, and so on. So there are many different conditions. So the first one is a little more primitive. Second, cognitive. Basically, this means, you know, there's two dimensions. Things that are outside of our coping ability after we appraise it, then that becomes stressful. And that's also different because some people, like for example, if all of you see a rattlesnake in your bathroom, stressful, right? But if a rattlesnake catches you, oh, that's where you are, baby. No stress, right? Because we assess it as, this is not good. Or, yeah, it's fine. So there's two dimensions. Of course, there's a biological dimension, too, <clears throat> in which, uh, this doesn't have a pointer, but, you know, the red dot, amygdala, this is in charge of the, you know, fight or flight mechanism. So when we see something, you know, to the retina, you know, there's a neural pathway that goes directly to the back of the brain, the occipital cortex or the visual cortex. And that feeds numerous, there's only one way in, but there's numerous neural pathway that goes right through to the other region of the brain. One of the most um, direct one is the center, the dark area, which is the limbic system, the emotive kind of seat. And amygdala is sitting right in the midst of that. So it has many different functions, of course, but to simplify this process, Fight or flight. Once it, it's perceived, it has a short term, kind of short list of memory. Once it's perceived, it's a threat. Then it contacts the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus contact the uh, hippocampus, and then through the pituitary glands, and then stress hormone are fleshed out through our body. The ANS is the uh, autonomic the nervous system, of which there are three. Right? Two is relevant for us today. First one is sympathetic nervous system. And that's the fight or flight. The second one is parasympathetic nervous system in charge of calm, rest. And this one is accessed through, most directly, our breath. How many of you have heard this? Uh, I certainly have. Uh, when I was growing up, when I was you know, tense or angry, my mom used to tell me, take 10 deep breaths. Is that a, an American thing or is it here too? Right? There's a science that backed this up, especially the exhalations activate the parasympathetic nervous system because this is in charge of calming resting. So we'll get back to that one. But um, the important part about this is, you know, there's a mechanism, uh, kind of neural, neural firing, synaptic firing of the mechanism of stress. Just like a car, a car has brake pads, right? Every once in a while we have to change the brake pads. Within the hippocampus, there are kind of like brake pads. They're called, they're kind of like receptors. They're called dendrites. Now, once stress is flushed out through the body, it doesn't just evaporate. 
it circulates back to the brain. The job of these dendrites working with other regions of the brain signals, okay, continue to produce stress hormones or getting us ready. Or they can put the stop here now. What happens if we're always using the brakes when we drive? The brake pads worn away. Stress itself is not a problem. You know, it helps us survive as a species, right? Uh, I'm sure many of you have experienced stress actually can help us to concentrate short periods. Right? You can finish a job. How many of you, for example, work well under stress? Right? Short, short term. Good. So do I. So stress itself is not a problem. However, if it becomes chronic, if in our perceptual process, we're constantly identifying things as stressful, stress hormones are continually fleshed out, and the brake pads are continually wearing away, then we have all kinds of problems. Because what happens with stress is basically other systems of the body are not necessary when you're stressed. You don't really think of hunger. So that's suppressed just by your, how, how the way that we're wired. Immune system is suppressed. Right? And other issues. But if it's chronic, then we will start to have problems precisely with these areas of the body. Right? How many of you have experienced this? You have a project. You know, your adrenaline is helping you finish the project. Soon as you finish, it's almost like while you're working, it's great concentration, clarity, finish the project. But soon as you finish, you tend to get sick. Raise your hand. You just collapse. Why? Immune system being suppressed. Right? And it's still suppressed. Right? It's still weakened. Because stress takes some time to get it out of the, the body. So many things, like metabolism, our heart. If it's chronic, it influences our concentration too. So anyway, the point of this slide is, Stress is okay, but not chronic stress. But modern life, we have chronic stress. Maybe ancient time, prehistoric time. We don't have to worry about you know, lions, you know, animals with saber teeth and all that. But now, you know, maybe our boss looks like that, right? <laughs> or our colleagues are like that. Or every little thing that's conceptual can be like that. We can actually simulate ourself. That's what the brain does. Simulate our sense of self and critique it. I'm no good, I'm too fat, too thin, too tall, too short. Right? Through our conditioning, cultural, family, so on. So we have more opportunity for stress. So more likely to have chronic stress. 
and we need methods of practice. Right? But in that, perception is the key. Now, I don't mean perception as the commonsensical notion of perception. Yeah, you can just skip this. What I mean is <clears throat> what the neuroscientists identify as an interoceptive process, interoception. It's this intrinsic, continual brain activity. Millions of neurons firing, predicting. One of the main jobs is, among others, predicting what is happening moment to moment, including sleep, including sleep. Now, if I were to drink this cup of water, I've been talking for a while, so a little thirsty, and I drink it, and if it's sweet, and I didn't know it's sweet, it's not, but if it is, I would be surprised, right? Because it just looks like water. Why are we surprised? Interoception. If you look at a green apple, green, maybe it's a little sour, you take a bite, it's sweet, <gasps> because it's different than you predict. Our brain is not reactionary to stimuli. Does this, and then we perceptually, through prefrontal cortex, you know, respond to it. When we see things, this intrinsic brain activity is already at work. Even before we see things, the interoceptive process is already at work. How many of you have experienced this? You, you go to a busy city, a lot of stimuli, and you walk through and you get tired just by walking through that. This guy is at work. There's a lot of unconscious activity that's going on in our brain. Now, unconscious, I don't mean like a Freudian notion, 19th century notion of unconscious. Something that used to be conscious, and then because of my parents, my father, I suppress it. We are actually literally wired to have all of these things happening beneath our normal conscious level of awareness. But, now, the interoceptive process is in charge of you know, breathing, heartbeat even, but there's one aspect that's in charge of, and that is the undercurrent tone of mental activities. And that part is accessible. How? Mindfulness. That's the part that I was talking about, exposing. Most of us are not aware of this. For example, you know, I'm sure you have experienced this. You just had an argument, and then you carry that feeling into the next poor soul. Someone says hi to you, it explodes. How many of you have had this? Very common. It is actually this undercurrent tone that we are not even aware of that's present, that's shaping the way you are listening to this talk, the way that you are perceiving me, the way that you are carrying out making decisions, judgments, and shaping your experience of this moment. So this undercurrent tone is accessible through mindfulness, 
to practice. And uh, this is able to help us manage, begin to even have an opportunity to manage our sense of peace and happiness. Okay? If we continue to relate, rely on something outside of us for happiness, then we set ourselves up for disappointment. If we can begin to bring a sense of contentment, ease within ourselves, then whatever we experience will be different. Right? Imagine yourself coming out of jacuzzi. Right? Someone steps on your feet. Right? Yeah, it's all good. Right? Imagine yourself you know, just getting out of a hectic you know, job situation. You're busy working. Someone steps on your feet. Your experience is very different, right? The culprit is not outside. The same thing, stepping on the feet, it's not outside. It's the experience inside that's shaping, dictating. Now, if we're not aware of this process, that means we live our life like Pinocchio, strings. The environment happened to be good, we were very happy. Environment happened to be bad, depression. It's like string. Because we've already given up our sense of peace, happiness, to someone outside. Not a good way to live. Right? So we have to. Now, unfortunately, in the way that we're raised, you know, the education system does not place so much attention to something that's so important, our happiness. You know, it teaches us how to get things from outside, how to relate to things outside. So this sort of continual education, adult education, meditation, mindfulness, it's extremely important, extremely important. Now this is a quick slide, I'm not gonna focus on this too much. This just shows that <clears throat> We only actually need 10% of what's happening outside. The 90% of our experience comes from inside. If you just take a look at how we are wired only, let alone the baggage that we carry, how we are wired visually, there's only one neural pathway from perception back to the occipital cortex. But once the occipital cortex feeds into other areas of the brain, look at this. The prefrontal cortex is the last place it goes. All of us are actually emotional beings. You may think, oh, this person is very rational, super rational. Even those super rational people, they're driven by this undercurrent tone of emotion, of feelings. I'm sure you have met. All of you have been to board meetings? Right, board meetings. You have people that are very articulate, can argue, can argue from all perspectives. And it's you know, very calm, analyze all situation. But everyone knows this person is just want to do that because you know, his sector of, this, of the company or this, it benefits them but they can come up with 20,000 different reasons why. It's actually driven 
by emotion, a self-referential kind of tendency around which we make decisions and so on. So we only need 10%, 90%. Or like some of you, you're sitting here, you don't have eyes on the back of your brain, but you have a spatial orientation of where you are. You know there's a few seats behind, someone sitting behind me. Why is that? That's the 90%. If there's some lesion in this pathway, you actually lose that spatial orientation. So the way we experience the world, the way we experience everything, it's actually mediated by our memory, our past, the baggage, I remember one neuroscientist was saying that the world as we know it, we've never lived in it. Think about it. All that the brain has to work with is neural firing, synaptic transmission of information. It doesn't actually see. It lives in a dark shell called cranium. It has never experienced the outside world. So data from outside translates into neural firing, millions of this, plus together with cognition. Cognition is basically things we make up like if you know English, this is called clicker. That's called a chair. If you know other languages, it's called something. It's just consensus. It's like what everyone share this repertoire of linguistic uh, kind of signifiers, right? And our baggage. So this is all that the brain has to work with. So it has never lived in the world. And the part of the brain's job is to predict and adjust. Some people who are stubborn, they don't adjust. Right? That's, that's the, the, this part. When it's flexible, it adjusts. Sometimes people are very selfish, self-referential, or stubborn, or whatever reason, they don't make adjustments. They rely on this. So, Aims of mindfulness meditation. This is the part that I spoke about. Expose. Embrace, transform, and awake. So therapy reaches the third level. Zen or Chan talks about awakening, but it's built on the previous three. Now, I want to leave with you one method that you can use anytime, anywhere. We will practice it sit, sitting down, but you can do it in your daily life. And I'll get to that. The key about meditation is really, for the kind of physiological part, it's really just the spine. What you want to do is maintain upright spine so that the lumbar area has this natural curve. Why is that? If I sit on a chair that's very low, 
the knees higher than my buttocks. Right? This one, knee is supposed to be lower. If it's knee is higher, what happens? All the bodily weight now crushes down to the center of the body. And your diaphragm is not able to relax. Unable to relax, your breathing will be shallow up here instead of abdominal breathing. And then what happens when we breathing is shallow up here? More likely for the energy to center, to be centered up here. That means wandering thoughts, a lot, scattered thoughts. And breathing will be shallow. So the second obstacle to meditation. My teacher called it chicken pecking at the rice. Sleeping. Wandering thoughts and drowsiness. Two obstacles. So there's a physiological dynamic to meditation. That is, you want to maintain the natural current just as if you're standing. So your spine, each vertebrae of your spine, one stacked on top of another effortlessly. Your head, chin should tuck in. Why? So you don't have to hold up the weight of your head, which is heavy actually. So tuck in the chin, so the spine aligns perfectly. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in order to do that, that's why in meditation, seated ones, people use cushions to prop up the buttocks so it's higher than the knees. Then the stomach can relax. Diaphragm, relax. Breathing sets down. Bodily weight sinks down, grounded to earth. Body stable, mind will start to clear by using a method. Okay. So without further ado, let's practice. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I know the chairs are very comfortable. But we want to avoid drowsiness, <laughs> okay? So sit at the edge of the chair. So the spine has nothing pressed against it. Nothing pressed against it. Place your hand temporarily on your lap. Knees, kind of two fists apart or one fist, whatever is comfortable. Anything tight on your body like glasses you can remove. Put it up. Okay. Now, the foundation of all meditation is relaxation. In order to meditate, we have to prime the body, prime the mind. How do we do it? Bring your senses now back to the body sitting here. In other words, feel the presence of the body your buttocks, a sense of weight placed on the chair. Okay. Now, systematically, we will relax the body. Bring your awareness now to the crown of your head. On this point, trickle down to the forehead, relaxing the skin, muscles, and tendons. Don't talk to yourself, don't reason yourself into it, actually feel the skin, feel 
the muscles relaxing. See if there's tension there. And then drop down to the space between our eyes, our eyebrows. This is the number one most difficult part to relax. In order to relax this, this is what we do. Raise your eyebrows up, in other words, tense up, raise it up, and let them drop. Let the eyebrows drop. Raise it up again, drop. Okay, do this a few times by yourself. Meanwhile, familiarize yourself with what it feels like to relax this area. Tactile sensations there. Extend that sensation of relaxation now to the eyeballs. Treat your eyeballs like muscles with no ability to see anything. So if you find yourself seeing darkness or seeing spots of light or black, that means you're still using your eyes. So pretend you're blind. Instead, feel through tactile sensations, feel the contours of your eyeballs. Even the weight. See if there's tension and relax the eyeballs. Continue on relaxing the cheeks, chin tucked in. Don't lower your head, just tuck it in, mouth closed. Gentle smile. And at this time, you can wet your lips with your tongue. Get a good feel of your lips. Gentle smile, just the corners of your lips. Through this simple muscle memory, positive chemicals will already flush down through your body. Serotonin, dopamine. I want you to savor this smile. There's already a shift in the undercurrent tone of your inner experience once you smile. So notice that, familiarize yourself with it. Okay, go back to the crown of the head. Now, to the sides, your temples, and to the back of the cranium. Going down the neck, feeling the muscles, skin, and to the shoulders, section by section. Now, the shoulders, second most difficult part to relax. We do the same. Inhale, raise your shoulders up towards your ears. Let them drop. Okay, do this three more times by yourself. And while you do it, familiarize what a relaxed shoulder is supposed to feel like. Just let the bone Hang, let the muscles hang on the bones. Extend continually down the two arms. 
feeling the skin, muscles, tendons, biceps, triceps, elbows. Forearms, palms, the warmth of your palms, and fingertips. Okay, now let's do the chest. So the back is erect. In order to relax the chest, all you have to do is see if you can feel the subtle rise and fall movement of your chest following the rhythm of your breath. Very subtle movements there. Okay. Continue down to the abdomen. Relax the skin, the muscles, and the tendons. See if you can feel the subtle movements of your abdomen. Rise and fall, rise and fall, following the rhythm of your breath. If you can feel this, that means the abdomen is relaxed. If you cannot, use your palm, place it gently over your abdomen. See if you can actually feel the subtle rise and fall movement following the rhythm of your breath. Can you feel that? Now you can move the palm away, but keep the sensation there. Okay, now let's go to the back. Back of the neck, flow down to the upper back. This means the shoulder blades. Subtle movements there too. Now I'd like you to be aware of your exhalations. Exhale, bring it down to the mid-back. Stay there for a moment, relaxing the skin, muscles, tendons. And then notice the next exhalation. Bring it down to the lower back, all the way down to the buttocks. Now, see if you can feel the sense of bodily weight at the buttocks. Allow that weight to sink down into the chair, into earth, leaving your upper body light as feather. Continuing the hips, thighs, and knees. Relax. Calves, ankles, and feet. Okay, at this time, you can keep your hand like this, or you can open your eyes, look this way. You can put left hand on top of right, palms up, 
two thumbs slightly touching. Feel those thumbs resting on your lap. Okay. Now. The body is primed for meditation. Now we do the mind. At this moment, the body relaxed, the positive chemicals would have already flushed down through your body. Serotonin, dopamine, there's a pleasantness. See if you can feel this undercurrent tone of pleasant, contentment. Needing nothing from the outside. I want you to savor this experience of feeling content of being here. And we bring this mindset to our breath. Simply be aware of the in and out of the breath, following the rhythm of your breath. Just follow. If the breath is long, it's long. Short, it's short. But there's also other sensations. Cool, warm, shallow, deep. Silky sensations, smoothness when we inhale. And a coarse experience at the nostrils when we exhale. Mindfulness of breath, stay with only the nostrils region. Experience it again and again, different qualities, savoring each moment. Open your eyes. Okay, please. Uh, the lights back up. How was that period? It was good? Okay. Now you can use this. This is the foundation of all meditation. What I call progressive relaxation. Once the body is relaxed, then you can use a method. Maybe some of you use mantra or counting the breath or following the breath. The principle is the easier the method, the harder to do, but the depth of concentration reached deeper. The more complicated the method, like visualizing the lines, this and that, all that, very easy to do, but the depth of concentration, very shallow. But usually it's good enough just to relax. So you listen to music, Beethoven, or whatever, the cognitive process is actually very complicated when you listen to music. Therefore, you can't reach single-minded concentration because it's too complicated, you see? Whereas meditation on the breath, a little less complicated. So the point of this is, if you find yourself a lot of wandering thoughts, you can count, count the breath. Very complicated, count it backwards. 20 to 2, 19 to 1, until you're more settled, 
and then go back to one to ten, one to ten exhalations, and then drop the number sensations. Or you can go directly to sensations. Okay. How do we use it for daily life? You don't use the mindfulness of breath. You just use the progressive relaxation. I teach this as something I called. I, I grew up in New York, so one minute Manhattan Zen. <laughs> so you integrate it. Don't make meditation an obligation. Set aside a separate time outside your life. You choose five things. Brushing teeth. First bite of lunch. Elevator ride. Whatever routine that you have. Whenever those times come, you can be making tea. The British people like to drink tea. Right? There's always a tea break in the middle of the day. Make tea. Three points, really, to relax. This region, most difficult. We hold a lot of tension. A lot of energy goes here. And we kind of live our life in our headspace. So this must relax. Tense up, relax. Tense up, relax. Second, this part. Third, this part. Once these three areas are relaxed, these three main areas will help to relax the rest of the muscle groups. This area relax the whole face. Shoulder relax the whole arm. And the tendons kind of hold on to the abdomen is able to relax. One of this is tense, the rest of it will be most likely tense. So systematically, as you make tea, relax. Be here in the present. Or elevator ride. Don't live in the headspace. Allow the mind to rest, to refresh, reboot. You're doing body scan. Does that make sense? And then you engage five times. If you can integrate five times throughout the day, that day, these five will extend to other areas of your life. And if you do this for three months every day, no interruptions. It's not an obligation. Five things you already do every day. You will see the increase in your ability to understand what's happening. You will start to personally understand the relationship between breath, mind, and tension in the body. When stress comes out, you will see the body have already shifted. Some part of the body is tense. So you relax this, the breath is changed, your attitude changed. There's a dynamic relationship between body, mind, breath. Okay, so then we start to be more in tune with ourselves, more exposing, understanding things that we think about, and we can begin to work with it. So my talk will conclude here. You know, uh, for self-massage, maybe next time I come back to London, or maybe Orca or Shane, who works here, can hold a follow-up program just to teach the relaxation again and the breath and the self-massage. Okay, so I'll take a few questions if you have. Yes. Hello. Um, Hi. Seems to be a lot of similarities with vipassana. Is yeah. there any relation 
uh, yeah. between the two practices. All systems of Buddhist meditation, all systems can be grouped under two types. One is shamatha, another one is vipassana. In translation, calming and clarity. So I'll give you an analogy. It's like candlelight. If the candles flickering in the flame, in, in the wind, whatever we see through this room, it's just fragmented, right? Unsteady. So the, these two types of meditation, uh, all systems of meditation, Buddhism falls under one of these two. Some, some of them, both. So Vipassana belongs to insight med meditation, but that's founded on the ability to concentrate. Does that make sense? So first, the candle light must not flicker so much. Then when the candle is steady, then the luminosity will be able to fill this room. You won't see kind of shadowy images, fragmented. It's pretty clear. Does that make sense? So these two are completely complementary. What I've done before just now, it's a preparation for concentration or Vipassana, you see, it's not even one. Of, it's just one-on-one -on -one meditation. How to relax? Now, some people don't take care of the body, don't take care of the undercurrent tone, and they just jump right into vipassana meditation or concentration practice. They carry the angst in daily life right into. So it takes them twenty minutes just to settle down, and then time's up. Just like the, you know, argument we kind of. Kind of graft our emotions right onto the next poor soul. Same thing. So foundational practice is very important. So what I show today is just foundation. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Yes. Um, when you do yoga, is that also preparation then? Because then you get to the point where you're able to meditate. I missed the first word. When you do yoga. Yoga. Yes. Wonderful. In our tradition, we actually do yoga. A particular set of yoga, not hatha yoga like ashtanga, particular set of yoga targeted for seated meditation practice. So focus on certain body parts like lower back, usual pain and joints. So we do that before we sit as a transition into sitting. And then we teach self-massage to come out of it. So that would be like a whole set. Stretching mindfully. So whatever the body is doing, your mind is right there. It's yoga, meaning yoke, right? As a preparatory practice. Yeah. But you know, like I said, the principle, the more complicated the method, easier to do. But the depth of concentration, shallow. So if we're doing through di different yoga. It's actually complicated. So the depth, depth of concentration, uh, it's kind of conditioned by all the movements and so on. Right? But as a preparatory practice, excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe one last question or? Yes, sir. Sit with it and 
and find the mind to relax and be calm. Yeah. If we do, if we practice progressive relaxation all the time, like I suggest that one minute Manhattan Zen, it becomes quicker. Like I, we sat for ten, 10 minutes, it went right back. And I guide it slowly. But when we are familiar, we can do it very quickly. We can do it over and over again. But uh, so, so the more skilled one practice, the better it gets. Now there's another part of the, of the question. Um, once the stress hormones are, are, are fleshed out, and there are moments, days, that we are kind of stressed, it doesn't evaporate like that, so it, it will take time. You know, so even for skilled practitioners, meditators, myself, stress, yes, but I have a method. You know, I, won't, I try not to kind of bring my stress projected right onto the next poor soul. Right? So the more we are aware of the dynamics of body, mind, breath, how they relate, and the different shifts that's happening in the undercurrent tone of how we feel, that if we practice exposing, the more we can have some management about it. You know, the more we're mindful, less likely we start screaming or yelling at people. The more considerate we are. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity, and I hope you've gotten something. Um, if nothing, just remember, relax. <laughs> <laughs> but now you have a tool how to relax. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma Talk by Chan teacher Guo Gu, who is the founder and teacher at Tallahassee Chan Center in the United States. You can find more talks from him at tallahasseechan.org. Hello everyone, welcome to Chan Podcast. Here is where you learn about meditation and Chan. So what is Chan? Chan, spelled as C-H-A-N, is a Chinese good of Mahayana Buddhism and is the originating tradition of Japanese Zen. We encourage you to learn and practice meditation with a group. If you like to, feel free to visit our website, LondonCharmMeditation.org.